Hello and welcome to another episode of the View from the Byline podcast. I'm Pete Trifonovich and as usual I'm joined by Alex Brinton and Matt Lee. Chaps, what have we been doing, well what have we been spending our time doing in this boredom we've found ourselves in? I've been, um, along with doing the usual uni work which I obviously have to say in case any of the lecturers listen to this, I've been sweating <laughs> out over that. Um, I've been watching The Last Dance, the new Michael Jordan documentary which I've been Really enjoying. Yeah, I've, I've, really I've been hooked on that too. Not even as a basketball fan, but very yeah, How you, Matt? Yeah, as you said, really, Alex. Got to say, working away on those essays in case anyone from <laughs> uni is listening. Um, but managed managed to find a bit of time to finally get around to watching the test on Amazon Prime. Did you uh, say as well, Matt? You were singing a few songs on V Day. <laughs> oh, he's revealing me now. <laughs> yeah, our street had a nice little street party with a warm-up act from four o'clock. Gentleman four o'clock. down our road. Yeah, he had his guitar out, singing a few songs. I must yeah, say, we then. we weren't immune from that either. To be fair, we had a few. There was a few songs on my road at in the evening, and a toast. Yeah, yeah. it's all part it's of this. Everyone coming together. Though. Yeah, very nice. Well, on this week's episode of the View from the Valon podcast, we are very grateful to be joined by a man who's spent his entire career at the BBC, oh, almost 39 years. It is uh, the BBC's technology correspondent, Rory Kethlin-Jones. And here's a few highlights of what we discuss. The first time you hear your voice, you hate it. Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone and it was you know, a huge moment. You can compare it to the launch of the modern T4. The dot-com bubble burst and they said, oh, the internet's over. And you would say about all the little stories, well, that's not going to get on air. Why should I bother with that? But it's little stories that lead to big stories. But the idea that it's a silver bullet, I think that's fading quite suddenly. So, Rory, obviously technology is playing a massive part in the coronavirus right now. Is that quite an exciting thing to report on? Well, it's, it's playing a huge part in two ways. First of all, um, it's enabling us all to, to work from home uh, and to communicate better. I, I wrote a piece right at the beginning of the lockdown about imagining what this would have been like in 2005 before the advent of smartphones, before there was much social media, before there was video conferencing, um, the kind of thing we're doing now. Yeah. And it would have been pretty bad. We would have been, um, we'd have been phoning each other up all the time. Um, there was very little online commerce. Uh, you know, if you think about kids trying to do uh, online classroom or whatever, that wouldn't have been possible. So uh, it's been a huge enabler of, you know, uh, of activities that, you know, w- would not have been possible uh, a couple of decades ago. But it's also been a story because... Um, well, for instance, I'm doing a lot of work at the moment on the UK's contact tracing app, uh, which is one of the ways that we're trying to get out of the lockdown. So there's that, there is um, the entire kind of fake news uh, phenomenon, which is kind of scary. There's the, the 5G uh, conspiracy theorists. Um, so there are a lot of good stories around uh, in the field. Yeah, I think you summed it up perfectly there. With technology, as there always is, there's a lot of good, but then a lot of dangers to it too.
So with every guest that we have on the podcast, we like to sort of ask them three sort of starter quickfire questions. So if you don't mind, when did you first realise you wanted to be a journalist, Rory? Um, I kind of thought of it during my university career, but what was really uh, influential was I, I did languages and I came back after my year abroad and a lot of my friends had graduated and they'd all become accountants and I just did not want to become an accountant. So that was a huge motivator. Uh, and I then flung myself into student journalism and, you know, just kept on chipping away at that until I eventually got a job. And if you could um, pick one historical event to cover, what would it be? Um, well, one that I was really annoyed that I wasn't covering was the fall of the Berlin Wall, because I lived in West Berlin uh, as a student wow. before going to university for six months at the height of the Cold War uh, in 1977. And I had huge interest in, uh, in what was going on in West Berlin. And it was a kind of very glamorous place to be in. You felt like you're in the middle of a spy, a spy novel. And so when I was, you know, I was a few years into my BBC career, but I was a very junior business reporter and the Berlin Wall came down. You know, I wanted to be sent there and of course they were never going to send me away. And what's the, what's the third question? Looking <laughs> third... back on your career, what advice would you give back to your younger self? Um, take as many risks as possible at an early stage. I did, I did take some risks in terms of, so I started as a producer um, with, and was doing really well. I was a, uh, a newsroom producer in, in TV news in London, in the headquarters in London, very early in my career. But I wanted to be a reporter and uh, I gave, gave up my staff job and went to be a reporter for the BBC in Wales. And that was a good thing. Um, I would say take more risks when you're younger though. Um, you know, maybe I should have gone and lived abroad. I always had this dream of being a foreign correspondent and it never happened because um, I didn't take that risk. Yeah, I think anything that's sort of like that in journalism, I think obviously as student journalists ourselves, we do get told, you know, try and stand out, try and be a bit different. I think that's definitely with yeah, risk taking get a part and parcel. Yeah, a specialism becomes, has become more and more important over the years. Mm -hmm. So we'll sort of now want to talk to you a bit about your career and how you've come to be the BBC's technology correspondent. And having done, done a bit of research, we sort of saw that obviously your father was sort of a prominent sort of television director. Was that um, sort of an encouragement to go into maybe broadcasting or journalism? No, really. Um, I didn't grow up with my dad. Uh, he was a glamorous figure. Um, that I didn't grow up with. So uh, okay. I, I was interested in TV drama, um, but, you know, I didn't go into the drama side at all. I no. went into journalism. So I was more kind of influenced by, you know, the glamour of what I saw as the, probably mistakenly as, as the glamour of, uh, you know, war reporting and, um, and figures like Harry Evans, um, the editor of the Sunday Times. I remember reading his book uh, when I was at, at university and re reading those uh, 
kind of inspiring stories of the difference journalism could make. And uh, they probably weren't very realistic. You know, I I'd always wanted to be a newspaper journalist. I ended up in television because, you know, that's where I got a job. Um, and that's, that's my other slight regret, or, or was at the beginning, because real, certainly back then, real journalism felt like newspaper journalism. And all the good TV reporters that I knew had come from being newspaper reporters first, whereas I never did that. So how did you get your foot in the door then, sort of in the journalism world? Well, I, back then there were a bunch of schemes, training schemes that you could apply for, graduate training schemes, and I applied for them all and didn't really get anywhere. And then I got to the final stage of the BBC's news trainee scheme, which is a great scheme. I got to the last, I don't know, 40 for 12 jobs, didn't get it and said to them, is there anything else I can do? And somebody said, write to every regional newsroom. So I wrote to all the sort of BBC regional newsrooms and one of them came back and said they had a, a three month contract uh, in Leeds. And at about the same time, I actually got offered a job in London on, believe it or not, a, a newspaper called the Teaching English as a Foreign Language Gazette. <laughs> and my mum, I remember, thought that would have been a much better, you know, that was a solid <laughs> job. That was a, you know, a proper staff job. Whereas going to Leeds on a three month contract, that was kind of risky um which of course it wasn't once you, if you're any good once you're in you're in so yeah. i on the three-month contract to leeds to be a researcher on the local news program look north and stayed yeah spent spent uh no more than 18 months there and then got a job in the london television newsroom it was breakfast tv was just starting right very first UK breakfast program and they need they ex were expanding the news operation fast and they need people to do night shifts writing little news bulletins for the breakfast news and so would you say that sort of helped you cut your teeth before you became in front of the screen well yeah I mean some some I suppose there, there were two career paths back then in, in television um, you, you either became a reporter, although, you know, most of the reporters probably, as, as I said, came from new, newspapers, or you, you, you went, made your way up the production tree and either became an editor or went off and made, made documentaries, TV documentaries. And I always kind of dreamt of being uh, a reporter. And it was, it was very, you know, it was good training. You were especially working on local news, you know, uh, just knocking stuff together in a huge hurry. Um, and then at the other extreme, working on the, what was then the nine o'clock news, you know, writing the, the headlines, writing the script that the presenters used to read out. Um, it's kind of a varied uh, diet. I mean, probably a better training to be, you know, to understand the production side of television than to understand real journalism. Hmm. Because that, that, Back then, and to a certain extent now, it was always the criticism of television news that um, they didn't really get the stories. They, they followed up the stories that were in the newspapers. You know, they, they were not um, knocking on doors and um, meeting contacts. They were just, you know, processing and standing in front of the camera. Um, so then, like we said, or like you sort of went on to talk about how you 
got that on-screen role at BBC Wales. Um, yeah. Were you ever sort of nervous before you went on camera or? Yeah, well, I still, I still, I don't think you ever lose that. I mean, you know, going on camera for the first time. Uh, well, first of all, you, the first time you hear your voice, you hate it. I think everybody here. Yeah, I agree. That first time you hear their voice, you quickly get get used to that. And you know, the the way you deliver a script is is a skill you really have to learn. And doing live TV is still hugely scary, and, and in all sorts of different contexts. Live in the studio um, is is challenging. Live down the line when you can't quite hear what's going on and there's some idiot shouting in the background is, is a different challenge. And what would you give advice wise to journalists coming into that sort of broadcasting um, experience to try and learn those skills? I sometimes hesitate because the, the world has changed so much. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's much harder in many ways because we all know the pressures the trade is under. It's easier in other ways because um, because of the tools that are available to people. I mean, when I started to do television, and ITV at that time had much bigger crews than the BBC, but BBC crews were three people, you know, uh, a cameraman, a sound engineer was one men, and a lighting person, uh, and then a videotape editor, and then maybe an engineer. So a huge army of people. Um, uh, now, you know, you can shoot it on a mobile phone. Um, and you can actually learn a hell of a lot of very decent skills um, without having access to much equipment or, or, or cash. So the, the advice these days would be very different from the advice back then. Um, the advice back then always was, you know, for one thing, watch the news obsessively, work out how they do it, you know, work out what is a story work out how how it's packaged and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and now I think it's kind of more just go and do it, go and, you know, yeah, watch some of the sort of techniques that people are using, but um, there's an awful lot of instruction available online. Um, I think we've got a guy called Dougal Shaw who makes little videos for, uh, for the BBC News website. And he, he does quite a lot of online um, explainers, really, on, on Twitter about how, how he works. So nowadays, I'd say, go and look at people like that and yeah. learn from them. You mentioned the, the scenario when you're live on air in the studio and you've got all those different people in your ear. Who are those different people on a typical basis? Are they behind the scenes or other reporters in your ear keeping you up no no i mean um so there are two different things in the studio as um what a correspondent does is sit across from the presenter and um when he's a very i mean i, I think the scariest thing is doing it for the 10 o'clock news because you know you've probably got one answer and you you almost have to learn it in advance and just deliver it you haven't got anyone in your ear but You've got Hugh Edwards looking increasingly kind of, when are you going to shut up? Um, <laughs> and um, you've got to be coherent and deliver it all in, you know, one minute and 30 seconds. When you're down the line, that's 
that's different. What you've got in your ear then is the program. Um, and uh, you're just hoping that, you know, the technology works. There's a lot of technology angles. I think there's more now than there ever was because, you know, we used to use satellite feeds, which were reasonably reliable. And now we use the internet and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I, see, I've been sitting here. I'm, I'm going to um, get rid of my uh, virtual background, which is uh, Ro Ronnie Barker's uh, prison cell from Porridge. Yeah, I thought it was. <laughs> um, um, I don't know if you saw that. They made all these backgrounds available. Um, uh, but I've, I've been sitting here for the last six weeks doing quite a few live broadcasts from um, from this, this is what was my teenage son's, grown up son's now, bedroom. Um, so, and, and what I've been doing is they've been Skyping me to this phone. I've plugged in a, an earpiece and a microphone and I'm just talking to that. And that is still kind of a nervy, a nervy process, mainly because you continually think it's going to go wrong. Mm. Quite often it does. <laughs> with the obligatory uh, bookshelf in the background, of course. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's all my son's Terry Pratchett. <laughs> um, is there anything that you, you pick up from watching other broadcasters that has really helped you with your delivery? Oh, uh, well, I think it's more about scripting. I mean, there are, there are I mean, I've been doing it for so, so long that I'm, I probably, you know, I just do what I do. But um, um, I mean, there are two things in, in in TV in particular. There are there's live and there's packages. And for most of my year, my career, packages have been the thing. Mm. Um, live is getting bigger. But I mean, the package is an amazing art form, really, when you think about it. And there are people over the years who've been absolutely brilliant at it. And years ago, it was Martin Bell. Uh, I don't know if you remember Martin Bell, but Martin Bell was the man in the white suit and he covered the Bosnian wars and he eventually became a, an independent MP. He was a sort of warrior for the truth. Anyway, he was a brilliant um, packager. And they used to say, he used to walk into the edit suite and just didn't write a script, just sort of, say show me the pictures and then sort of almost declaim i never quite knew whether that was true <laughs> but nowadays I and mean, there are people there are two let me mention a couple of people alan little um who's sort of semi-retired now he just writes beautifully uh and the, the, the biggest guy in new york nick bryant who is also you'll have seen him do packages for the 10 o'clock news on coronavirus in new york he just, he just writes beautifully. So I don't know if I learned from them, but you know, I just think, God, I wish I could write like that. Yeah. So Roy, as you pointed out, you've been doing this role for a very long time. In fact, obviously you started the BBC in 1981 with 60% of your life being spent working for the world's oldest and largest in terms of their employers uh, broadcaster how have you seen it change 
Well, I mean, the what, what's what's the, the biggest thing that's changed, uh, sort of professionally in the last 10 15 years is that I joined at a time of great expansion, um, when they were employing more and more journalists and news was expanding. I talked about breakfast TV, um, and there was a lot of current affairs and so on. And the last 10, 15 years, it's been, you know, uh, a time of, you know, penny pinching and, and contraction. Um, but, but also, um, greater efficiency and, and, and the, the need to learn a lot of new skills. Um, obviously, the, the rise of, of online has been hugely important and, you know, probably within the organization, not, not recognized in, enough and, until recently, because there's always been this sort of pecking order with the 10 o'clock news and the Today program right at the top, and it used to be, oh, online, what's that? And now, finally, people have woken up to that is where the audience is. So I've seen a huge change in the sort of culture of newsroom attitudes to what's important and what's not. But also, I think, and this has happened in all newsrooms, a certain, you know, lack of uh, self-confidence, because in terms of, what's a story because when i started news editors were always you know gruff old buggers who knew what a story was they would say that's not a story my auntie what's the name is not interested in that uh and now more and more it's well what is trending uh what's the most read whatever you know people have slightly lost confidence in their own judgment of what a story is and what it isn't i mean as an aspiring journalist, and I mean, I guess I can't speak for Alex or Matt, but I probably think they'll be in the similar boat. I sort of see the BBC as a pinnacle of, you know, journalism world. Did you ever sort of feel tempted, like you said, you had a desire to work in sort of print? Have you ever been tempted to move away from the BBC? Um, yeah, I, I, I had an interview at CNN years ago. I'm so glad I didn't go there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Channel 4, I was a big admirer of Channel 4 News and I did, you know, I, it was very difficult uh, to, to do really good specialist stuff for many years. Um, I, was, I was a TV news business correspondent for many years and that was a real, it was quite a high profile in some ways but there wasn't much journalism to it. It was yeah. 1, 6 and 10 o'clock news, bish bash bosh, two minutes on Marks and Spencer's results. Um, very little, you know, going to see people, working your contacts. Um, so I, I did kind of, for some years, feel how much better it would be if I was working for a newspaper, how much more real journalism I would, do, would be doing. But then what happened with online and the, and the rise of blogging and social media was you began to get out a outlets and b new connections with your audience that that made your journalism more rewarding. Um, yeah. So, like, I mean, for, for for years as a TV reporter, you get lazy because so many stories were just not worth doing. Because when you think about it, hardly any stories get on air. 
the, the, the 10 o'clock news is eight, nine stories. And you would say about all the little stories, well, that's not going to get on air. Why should I bother with that? But it's little stories that lead to big stories. Um, I, I thought this went, you know, went alongside Robert Peston. And he, he came to the BBC uh, from newspapers. And a lot of people who came from newspapers didn't really prosper because of that. They became incredibly frustrated because they knew it, they found out X and Y and the news editor would say, sorry, that doesn't mean anything to be the audience of the Telegraph News. But he had a blog and the blog became incredibly influential and he could float stories on that blog uh, which would then generate, you know, leads for something that would be a huge story because uh, the people he was speaking to would, would see the product uh, online. Um, there was an outlet for for his journalism. Yeah, I think it, it is almost that idea of, to coin a slightly change phrase, look after the little stories and the, like you say, the big stories yeah. will look after yeah. themselves. Yeah. Did you ever feel pressure compared to your colleagues from other outlets when you worked under the title of, you know, the BBC? What do you mean? In terms of having to be, I don't know, I feel like the BBC have a certain reputation that they are the ones that everybody else is looking to be. Did you ever feel an expectation? No, I, I, to be honest, almost the, the, the opposite. But for years, right. you know, I think, Certainly compared with ITV and Sky years ago, we were thought of uh, as slower, you know, um, less aggressive, um, you know, uh, a bit stodgy, a bit bureaucratic. So it was more, more that. I mean, many years ago, we all used to sit and watch ITV news and go, God, how did they get that? Um, and I think we've got better over the years, but but that that's more of a danger with a sort of big established, quite slightly bureaucratic organisation that you're not hungry enough and aggressive enough in chasing stories. Obviously, some people have sort of complained about the licence fee in the last sort of few last year or so. Yeah. And, but what is it to you? That makes that such a worthwhile thing and what make what makes the BBC so worthwhile in your mind? It's because I mean the, the license fee is a is a kind of is a is a kind of magical thing that you know what what did people say about democracy? Democracy is the worst possible thing until you consider the alternative. It's yeah. Exactly like the license fee. And a lot of people I've never understood the whole bargain of the license fee. People would say, oh, BBC is going down market or, you know, why do you do all these soaps or, or whatever? And the whole point about the license fee is that it has to deliver something for everybody and news is part of that. So without it, we would not be able to do the, the breadth of coverage that we do. Mm. We would be able to have, you, you know, we, we could survive without the license fee but it would not be the BBC. Um, it would be, you know, aggressive, smaller. They, they might still have a news service as a kind of, you know, a, a vanity thing, but much of the variety of what we offer just would not be available.
Now, with regards to your role as technology correspondent, was that something you always wanted to specialise in, or was it a matter of once you got into journalism, you then adopted that as your major? It's kind of completely accidental. So I started um, as sort of doing general news. Then in the late 80s, <laughs> when I came back to London from, from Wales in 1990-ish, I became a business correspondent because there were opportunities there. And I did that for sort of 10 years. And then in the late 90s, the most interesting business stories that I got kind of obsessed with was the dot-com bubble. The rise of Google, you know, that extraordinary explosion of technology startups. Um, so I kind of moved sideways into that. I, I was, and I still am in the BBC's economics and business unit. Uh, and then in about 2000, they said to me, oh, we're going to make you internet correspondent. Um, I said, fine. And then the dot-com bubble burst and they said, oh, the internet's over, go back to being business correspondent. <laughs> um, but I kept an interest in technology stories. And then, don't forget, it was a different, uh, there, there were technology correspondents 25 years ago, but they were actually talking about jet engines and that kind of stuff. Um, they were not talking about so, social media and so on. So um, when two, it was 2007 that they, they kind of realized quite fortuitously that technology was gonna be a big thing again. And I transferred to that. And the first big story I did was the launch of the iPhone. I am writing a book at the moment, which kind of starts with the launch of the iPhone. And the beginning of a, an era of very personal, uh, accessible technology. Because when I was growing up, technology was something quite remote. You know, moon landings, um, Concorde or whatever. It wasn't something that you could stick in your pocket and would be with you all the time. Did you get pushed into technology or was that sort of, was that more your choice? They, they, it's kind of accidental. I was sort of covering it as a business correspondent because there were still, there were an increasing number of business stories about, you know, mobile phone companies and whatever. And it, as I said, it was far the most interesting area of my business brief. So yeah. they were pushing at an open door and I was pushing, pushing back as it were. So I, it was, it was kind of luck, dumb luck. So Rory, you mentioned the iPhone there. Um, would you put that as the most defining point in the world of technology? So the launch of the iPhone is probably, well, one of the most significant events of the last 30, 40 years, um, because it, signaled um, the, the beginning of the smartphone and social media era. Um, and I, I mean, I was very lucky because I happened to be there. Uh, we had gone to this show called CES, which happens every year in Las Vegas, which is a big annual gadget show. And the BBC had gone in just when I had just been appointed technology correspondent and they decided to make a big deal of this show. And I said, oh, there's this other show happening at the same time, Mac World, uh, in San Francisco, and we should go and do that. And they said, oh, all right. And we just, the cameraman and I took a day out and went off to that. And Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone, and it was, you know, a huge moment. 
and there were complaints about our coverage because they said, people said, oh, you're plugging Apple. Um, and I said, I went on a complaint program and said, uh, slightly with my heart in my mouth, oh, it's, it's a, it was a bit like you could compare it to the launch of the Model T Ford, Henry Ford launching the Model T mm. Ford. I thought maybe that was a bit over the top. But when you think about it, it's Not true. Sure. It's the single most profitable product ever made. You know, the, the amount of money it's delivered for, for Apple and the change in our lives is introduced. What we were talking about at the beginning, you know, uh, the connectivity revolution that made this lockdown a bit more bearable. It all began there. So how do you keep up with all this technology? It's, it's a, probably the most constantly moving industry. How do you keep yeah. on top of it? I mean, one of the problems is that you get blase and you, because the, the, the sheer amount of crap that's coming at you, the, the, the other big thing that's changed in my lifetime is the imbalance between journalists and the public relations industry. So, you know, it used to be, this number of journalists and that many PR people, and now it's like that, PR to journalism. And I just get a ton of stuff coming at me every day. Um, and I have a tendency to delete most of it and be quite rude to the PRs bringing me up to tell me they've got some amazing thing. So it's more a question of, you know, trying to work out which of all these developments is going to be important and which isn't. So, you know, for, uh, PRs just rung me up with some, oh, we're going to make some acquisition in the enterprise software world with the kind of story that I would never do in a thousand years. So uh, one has a tendency to say, just go away to all of them. Um, but you have to be careful because every now and then one of them will be a really good story. Yeah, so how do you just sort of, did you learn to filter that sort of stuff over time or was there some sort of method? Well, we, we have, you know, it's, it's the process of any newsroom, um, partly individuals and partly just knocking these around. I mean, having more bloody meetings than ever. So there is a tech team. I'm the, the main correspondent, but there's a whole separate little team that does the, the, the technology index on the website. Uh, and we have a meeting, we have one meeting at 8.20, another at 9.20, and we look look at what's around and people come up with ideas and, you know, it's the, the classic, it's no different from your local newspaper 30 years ago in that way, you know, the morning meeting, what you got, what, yeah. what have you made the police and ambulance calls, except that this time it's, oh, this seems to be trending on Twitter. I mean, going... Jumping back to sort of the iPhone, was there ever a point where somebody sort of said in your newsroom, I don't think this is going to be the next thing, like they did with the internet? Oh, uh, well, um, all the time. Um, not with the, I mean, the, the thing about the iPhone was that if you're there and you've turned up with a camera crew um, and you're on the other side of the world, they're quite likely to take it. But um, but more and more, they would just say, because, you, you, you know, I used to go to lots of launches, go to far fewer now, because they will say, it's just another phone, and they'll be right. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a constant, there's a to and fro amongst the technology team, but the more, much more difficult to and fro is with the 
editors of the various news bulletins. Why should I be interested in that? You know, and usually it's, a, it's quite a hard battle to, to win. Now, with technology being such a constantly changing and rapidly developing uh, sector of life, what do you think are the next groundbreaking changes with the next couple of years? Well, we're, we're the, the thing that we've been bombarded with over the last few years is artificial intelligence and the, the changes it will bring. And we go through these hype cycles and what we're actually waiting for is there's been a lot of hype about AI and not much delivery. So we're now waiting for a few concrete um, changes in our lives that will be delivered by that. We've been hearing about the robot revolution, for example, and how we're all going to lose our jobs to automation. That has not happened much, but you know, this crisis we're going through now could accelerate that. We've been told, for instance, that something I'm quite interested in, the huge impact that AI will have on healthcare. Um, you know, could AI help in discovering a vaccine, for example? It's supposed to be very good at drug discovery. Finding new drugs is an incredibly lengthy and expensive business. And if you can automate it with AI, that could make a huge difference. So that, that's the big question. Will, will that revolution actually come to pass? A lot of these things, I mean, if you think a few years ago, we were talking a lot about virtual reality and then augmented reality. And neither of them has delivered quite the changes or quite the interest that was presumed. And I think it'd be silly not to ask you, given the circumstance we find ourselves in, and as you pointed to technology and healthcare with the coronavirus at the moment, is there, do you think that it could be a very key player it, with the tracing app like you talked about? Mm. Is it going to be even bigger than we thought it would have as a, as a player in What's interesting about the tracing app is the huge amount of hype around that. The idea that it's a silver bullet, I think that's fading quite suddenly. I, um, I think it's probably not going to work. Or if it does work, it will be as a kind of adjunct to a whole bunch of other things like manual contact tracing, ringing people up and saying, you know, who were you with last Tuesday? Um, so, it's a kind of classic example, really, of slightly tech hype. Um, people believing that tech can make a huge difference. And obviously, as you talked about, you sort of you have a bit of a passion for technology and healthcare. Mm. Would you sort of, given as you've been quite public about sort of your health challenges, yeah, um, would you care to sort of explain a bit about the circumstances you find yourself in? With. So I, uh, I've got Parkinson's disease, which I was sort of diagnosed with um, January last year, and I sort of came out about that because it was becoming a bit evident that I had this tremor on air. Um, so I'm quite, I'm taking a great interest in, you know, what difference technology can make there. Uh, at the moment, not much, but again, it's about uh, artificial intelligence and drug discovery um, and that kind of area and, and various apps that could maybe um, help in the kind of management of the, the condition. I mean, I've, luckily I'm at quite an early stage, so 
I'm not particularly disabled by it, but you know, I'm obviously taking an interest in what might be possible there. Yeah, and I mean, it would be very understandable for from sort of the outside world to understand if you wanted to keep sort of the challenges you're facing very much separate from your broadcasting uh, mm -hmm. career, but you haven't, in fairness. Mm -hmm. Why did you sort of think that, as well as I've obviously seen with the proton beam therapy that you underwent, yeah, for, um, yeah, your uh, issue, your cancer of your eye, um, yeah. Why did you feel it was sort of something you wanted to combine together? Well, once once I'd come out of it, the thing about the Parkinson's was it was becoming visible on air. People were asking about it, mm -hmm. and I I tweeted about it, and the whole kind of you know world crawled all over it. And then I talked about the eye thing, which is a long anything um and then actually filming a video diary which by the way i did with this just the thing of pocket osmo about that it was actually quite therapeutic i mean people have two different reactions to it on this don't they they either want to sort of find a way and pretend it's not happening or they want to talk about it and mm. i'm a kind of gabby sort of guy who wanted to talk about it and it's been quite um therapeutic really you know and various people Bloke rang me up yesterday, who has been put in touch with me, who's been diagnosed, a uh, guy running a plumbing business, and what, just wanted to talk about Parkinson's. He'd heard me talking about it. So uh, that was quite positive. Yeah. I think it is almost like the idea of sharing a problem sort of makes it a bit easier to deal yeah. with, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you said you were only in the early stages. But have you had to change anything about the way you've, you've been working at all? Or yeah, well, a bit. I mean, I've always been a terrible typist, and I'm even worse now. I'm just very, very slow. Um, which means that things like voice transcription become yeah. ever more useful. That is a technology that's absolutely revolutionised my life at the moment. I record nearly everything on something. Have you guys heard of something called Otter? No. Oh, you, the okay. trouble is, I'm telling you about it just when they start charging for it. Um, in the last year, uh, Otter, Otter is this voice transcription app, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, you just record, you either record live or you feed in a recording into it and it transcribes it. Um, and it used to offer you 600 minutes a month for free and then you paid for any more. And 600 minutes was absolutely ideal but um i think they're beginning to charge more for it now anyway that kind of app um for somebody who types incredibly slowly very useful who needs shorthand with things like that <laughs> yeah well that's the that was the, the kind of it that was the embarrassing thing we're talking about wanting to be newspaper gyms. i i had very little training and i never did shorthand uh, and the few times I used to do court cases when I was a reporter in Wales, I used to hide at one end of the bench so the wizened old hacks couldn't see that I didn't actually have shorthand. <laughs> I'd, you know, just get a few key phrases from the judge. So I guess, finally, Rory, I think we wanted to sort of end on a bit of a lighter note, but I know in my family, and probably I think Alex and Matt the same, we're often having to teach our parents about how to new use new technology. Yeah. Was that the exact opposite in your household? Um, not really. I am still teaching older, even older people. I've got a lovely elderly 
relatively in her 80s, mid 80s. Um, and I'm desperately trying to teach her Zoom. In fact, we managed to do a Zoom with her the other day. But I've got uh, I've got two two kids, and they're both pretty savvy, um, and certainly know far more than me about games. The thing I'm I'm no good at all about is is video games. You know, we did Sim City twenty years ago, and that that's when it stopped. So um, it is slightly annoying at work um, that. Uh, people do seem to think you're computer support at work. <laughs> I just say turn it off and on again and then yeah. leave it then. BBC cutbacks, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, um, a really big thank you for coming and joining us on this podcast today, Rory. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. Cheers. That's all from this episode of the View from the Byline podcast. Next week, will be joined by the former deputy editor of the Sunday Express and comment editor of the Times, Paul Dunn. Until then, make sure to follow us on Twitter and also subscribe on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Take care and see you next week. <laughs>